most people know more about what they don't want from HR than what they do want. And you go in in the interview and you say, well, what, what does great HR look like to you? And they say, well, it's not this and it's definitely not that. Jeff Weiner is a legendary CEO and I have heard he can be a total asshole. What was it like working with Jeff? He was looking to trap me in the interview. I just, I, it was one of those weird interviews where I'm like, you don't really like HR. You've never seen it. And he had this real aversion to talking about culture, right? I mean, he literally told me in the interview, you are not going to be my consigliere. That is not what I want here. If I take a look at HR in general, you are serving two things primarily at the end of the day, judgment and credibility. Those are your products. And the best way to realize whether your judgment matters and whether you have credibility is to deal with gnarly stuff quickly. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, we have Steve Cadigan on the show. Steve was the CHRO at LinkedIn from 400 to 4,000 employees. I love talking to Steve Nolan. I mean, he he was just really vulnerable. I mean, he was superhuman. He was super humble. And he's done it all. I mean, EA to LinkedIn and onward. The stories he told were real. And it was so fun to listen to. I think the audience is going to love Steve's story specifically around Jeff Weiner and the culture of intensity and how Steve ended up not only just surviving, but thriving in that type totally. of culture. Totally. I loved how he said you, you literally couldn't pay him enough to go back and do an operator role and his, his stories around why. I mean, he, yeah. he's seen both sides. It was just, it was really cool to talk to him about it. Yeah. I mean, Steve is a total ass kicker is the way I would describe him to the audience. And, yeah. and you will get that as you listen to this episode. And I love his takes on executives on how you transition out of executives, on like betting on people, but the risks associated with that. Also like bringing in people who have like really scaled experience and the risks associated with that. And, and to your point, Kelly, he was so humble in how many mistakes that he made. It just made leadership more human to me. And I think the audience is going to learn a lot. Stay tuned after the interview for our weekly segment where we hit on hate speech at work after recent incidents at Apple and Wix. So without further ado, here's Steve. Steve, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. So great to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Our goal really with this show is to get into the stuff that people are really scared to talk about. Um, there is, I think conventional wisdom in HR is to be really fluffy, to not say anything like controversial. And so what we've been hearing from our listeners so far as it relates to feedback is they want to hear you get into like the meaty shit of what you've seen in your career, the stuff that you haven't talked about and the stuff that other people aren't talking about publicly. I think I built a career. I believe that uh, I broke more policies than I made and um, non-traditional, you know, and I think that's the theme with Colleen and, and Patty. And so, you know, that's more fun to me solving problems than being HR and uh, it's such a weird weird profession 
from the standpoint of it's highly relationship based. There is no accreditation. Um, many, many people were deputized because they were the admin of the CEO and they got into it. More, pe- I didn't want to get into HR because I, I saw more people that I didn't like doing HR than I did. So I was really reluctant to be in the field. You know, So I think the, the best uh, HR leaders that I've come across are the ones who are like, yeah, I'm not really HR, you know, but uh, here I am. And it's just also complicated by the fact that most people know more about what they don't want from HR than what they do want. You know, and you go in in the interview and you say, well, what, what does great HR look like to you? And they say, well, it's not this and it's definitely not that. And like, so you haven't seen it, you know, and that's sort of on us, you know, and uh, I think Colleen said it, HR is such an easy target for poor leadership that we take the hit <laughs> a lot of times. Uh, unfairly. That's a great place to start. And then like taking that into just how that crystallized for you through your early companies, through EA, up and through LinkedIn. We have a, stories on the LinkedIn scale. I love some of the stuff in your, your book, uh, Steve, right? The concepts around the anxiety ridden workplace and economy, things like that um, were very interesting to me. And then you have some really great points of view on remote work that we really haven't touched in depth, Nolan. We haven't at all. All right. I want to jump into LinkedIn. So you were at LinkedIn from 400 employees to 4,000 employees. And the the interesting thing for me about LinkedIn is it wasn't considered sexy like Google and Facebook back in the day, but it actually was known for having an amazing culture and then ultimately had a massive exit to Microsoft. How did you guys do it? Like, Give us the details on those stories. Yeah, so let me go back a little bit. Um, going into LinkedIn, I'd never worked in that size company before. I was a big company refugee. Every one of our executives uh, probably came to the table saying, we know more about how we shouldn't and don't want to you know, build a company than we do. And the CEO was a first-time CEO. Uh, no one had ever been in this product space before, uh, recruiting and recruiting product and so forth. And so it was a real adventure and experimentation exercise on a massive scale. And for me, walking in the door, I thought, well, how hard can this be to build a company? I mean, I've seen every mistake. I've made tons of mistakes over the course of my career. How hard is this going to be? And what I didn't appreciate was I'd never built a company before. And taking HR down to the studs and having nothing, like literally week one, there was a huge fight in the executive meeting around performance reviews. Should we do it? Should we not do it? If we do it, should we have a three-point scale, five-point scale, seven-point scale? And if it's a seven-point scale, should it be seven points and seven decimal places? And if we give a rating, should we tell the employees or should we not tell the employees? And what's the rhythm of that? Quarterly, biannually, you know, every six months, annually, whatever you want to do. And then should we also do rating and ranking? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You guys have been around five, six years. You got 400 people. You've not even thought about this. And they've been holding on till, you know, the adult supervision HR person. And I was the first HR full-time person on staff that they'd ever had. And, uh, and so c- c- couple that with the fact that everyone on that leadership team was suspicious of HR. You know, I, even Jeff Weiner, uh, he was first-time CEO. I was the first hire that he made on his staff. He didn't hear it at everyone else. And he looked at, he was looking to trap me in the interview. I just, it was one of those weird interviews where I'm like, you don't really like HR. You've never seen it. And he had this real aversion to talking about culture, right? I mean, he literally told me in the interview, you are not going to be my consigliere. That is not what I want here. And I'm thinking, I didn't propose that I would be your consigliere. (laughs) Like, I don't know what you're talking about. 
So I left that interview going, wow, man, I don't know if I want to work with this guy. And they're really down on HR. And it's a miss because their main customer are my peers, right? So, um, but back to your question, Nolan, I mean, gosh, I can't tell you uh, what a great opportunity it was on one level to be practicing HR in a company whose main product is HR, whose main customer is HR. And so I got to do product, um, you know, feedback, I got to do sales calls, and I got to practice my craft, which was a dream come true on so many levels. But here was the irony. You ready for this one? Our biggest problem as a company was recruiting people and our biggest product was selling recruiting. <laughs> and if our customers knew at that point, we had no idea why we weren't more effective, um, I think it really would have harmed us. And so we were struggling so bad the first two, two and a half, three years I was there. Um, and finally, we, uh, we had this moment of truth, if you will, sat around as a, a leadership team. And, uh, you know, I was saying, listen, every one we're competing against is uh, got a bigger budget than us. They got bigger salaries, better benefits, better. When we used to work in buildings, I don't know if the listeners remember that, but we used to work in buildings. And I mean, our neighbor, we were surrounded by Google and their daycare centers and their sushi chefs and their fancy buses. We had to go over new hire orientation, how to avoid getting hit by the Google buses walking <laughs> to the buildings. And so, and the, bikes. Know, and, then, and then Netflix comes in and says, uh, we're just going to give you a number like 400,000. And then you say whatever, what you want in stock and you say what you want in bonus and vacation. And we're like, what we, you know, our whole package is 400, but there's this bonus. And if you do good and the customer likes us and you know, the accelerators come in. So it was really, really hard. And so finally we have a moment of truth as an executive team where I sit around and say, guys, we really got nothing here. So you got to give me something. You either give me more budget or you give me some kind of, you know, reason for us to give candidates a why they should choose us because they're not. And our decline rate was off the charts. Scary. I mean, something like 40% offer acceptance rate. So um, that was the moment of truth where we finally asked a question, which every company should ask. And I, and you know, 30, I was going into this on something like 25 years in HR, 30 years in HR. I would never asked this question, which is so elemental, but so profound. Why would anyone want to work here? And the reason we never asked the question is we just assume because we're nice, people are number one, you know, we're great, we're going to make good money, we've got a good leadership team, and we've got good investors, and the future's bright. And we have beer Fridays and all that. And what a candidate hears when you say that is blah, 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 because everyone says that, and then they do listen to the beer part, but that's about it. And so I'm asking the team, like, what do we got? We have no beautiful vacation, we have no beautiful buildings, we have no technology luminary on staff. And so it forced us to really look at ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, what do we have? We have a problem we're solving, helping people find their dream jobs. No one can touch that. That is really beautiful. It's better than selling DVDs. It's better than helping kids develop their short attention span capability over there at Faceplant, I mean Facebook. And it's better than you know proliferating fake news or being engineer number 7,000 over at Google and buffing the trophies of everyone before you. I don't know. What do you want to do? You want to help people find their dream job or do you want to go over there? And be assigned, you know, some random project that you don't have any input into. It's up to you. And we started, I mean, we started turning the tide. And then here's the, the, the moment that really changed. Uh, and if you have the opportunity to do this as a company, I would highly recommend that you really leverage it, which was, we said, what asset do we have? <laughs> you know, so why would you want to work here? Okay, answer, problem we're solving. 
Second thing is, what assets do we have to really differentiate ourselves in a very, you know, candy store career, you know, of Silicon Valley? Like it's a career candy store. And we said, well, we can't pay people more. We don't have all these things, but we can make working here the most learning rich experience of your lifetime. And then someone said, it wasn't me, someone said, and by the way, we're the professional network. Shouldn't we be the best place for professionals? <laughs> you know, and it sounds so obvious in retrospect. Like, yeah, we should own that. We are the professional network. It should be the greatest place any professional's ever been. And so we didn't agree on much as a leadership team. I mean, this was not, a LinkedIn leadership team was not a, hey, let's go hang out and have barbecues. It wasn't. It was like, you know, very competitive, very intense uh, mirroring the personality of our CEO, Jeff. And so, you know, we, we were sort of all in on this is going to be the greatest job you ever had. We can't pay you more. We believe if the company performs, there's going to be a great destiny for lots of us financially. But this problems we're solving and we're going to create something great. All that amongst Jeff starting off with, I really think culture is a trap. Those posters on the wall, that's a trap that the employees are going to call me out on. And he'd seen at Yahoo all this talk about culture and all the executives doing the other things. So what helped us turn the corner was recognizing who we were. It was kind of like organizational puberty, right? Like all of a sudden, oh, okay, that's who we are. Okay, we got to be a great professional network. Okay, yes, it's our birthright. We should own that. Uh, the problems we're solving, let's you know, really articulate that well. And if we don't have any tech luminaries here, let's start bringing them in for lunch and learns and so forth. And that really started to turn, turn the tide. And I, I would say my first two years there, I bet not a single person came in without a pay cut, not one. Yeah, and so that was really helpful. It's so interesting that we like take our experience before, like you said about Jeff and Yahoo, and I was at Yahoo too at the time Jeff was, and I, I get it. I get taking those experiences and it imprints on you. And you're like, I'm never going to do that again, or I'm going to do that over and over. Um, it's something that, that I find very fascinating. Steve, you said something that I thought I've felt in my own career, and I think a lot of folks maybe on the line are feeling, and maybe they're, the founders are the, one, the ones that are imprinting this on them, but you said, you know, I got there and they didn't like HR. They, you know, it's, it's usually, especially in these early stage um, companies that are growing from the outset, Nolan, you might have a point of view as well. It's kind of like this necessary evil that we know we have to have, but we don't really want steering the ship or taking it in a way that we don't want to take it. And I, I, I've, I've been through that, and it's like this double whammy of clawing for trust and a place at that, at that table, <laughs> and also trying to put in what they see as right, boring foundations that aren't about product, that aren't about sales, that aren't about revenue, but they're necessary. And I don't know about you, but there's been times where it finally clicked, like those moments that you finally get over that hump. And it's, it's almost unfair how difficult that is to do. But can you unpack like when that moment for you happened at LinkedIn and how that worked? Maybe some advice on how to get there, because it's certainly a big hump to get over. Yeah, it is. And I think everyone, you know, I knew in the interview process, okay, these people don't know what HR can do. So one of the founders, the head of engineering said, his main focus of my interview was, what do I think of 401k plans? <laughs> I was like, impressed that he knew Yikes. what a 401k plan was. So I'm like, okay. Um, someone was like, you know, do you, are you ready to make a sacrifice? You're not going to see your kids. I was the only executive that had three young kids. Um, at LinkedIn. All the other ones had either no kids or grown kids or Jeff had young kids, but 20 nannies, so it doesn't count. Um, so, um, you know, so for me, 
If I take a look at HR in general, you are serving two things primarily at the end of the day. Judgment and credibility. Those are your products. Okay. And the best way to realize whether your judgment matters and whether you have credibility is to deal with gnarly stuff quickly. Okay. So I'm always looking for that. That's why I love M&A because you're going to have tons of problems and tons of impossible situations and people are going to see what you're made of. So the first thing in any organization is every executive is asking, can I trust you? And they're going to set you, they're going to put you in situations where they're going to tell you something and they're going to see if you're going to run to the CEO or the CFO or what you're going to do. Okay. And so I was really looking forward to those moments. So for example, in the performance review discussion, they were so ready to hear me say, oh, we have to have performance reviews. Like, hey, I hate performance reviews. And they're like, what? I said, oh yeah, I hate it. I said, can you tell me the moment in your career that changed your life was that great performance review that you had? It's like, this, has any executive ever said that pivotal moment was that great performance review I got? No, it's deflating. It's a horror show that you're asking your leaders to go through. And most people, especially in Silicon Valley, have never been trained on how to deliver this really, really well. So I'm like, yeah, I'm all in. Let's not do it. And they're like, what? No, we have to do it. And then I had them. I totally had them. I'm like, no, no, we have to. Why do you have to do it? Well, because we need you know, to make sure that we're realizing high performance. I go, but do we need a performance review for that? So right away, I'm laying it down. Like, no, I'm not coming from some policy playbook that they're expecting me to implement to deflate their you know, ambitions to build a great company. So that's when they're, they're you know, I put them in the position of coming to lobby me for infrastructure versus me hammering you know, with my policy Bible under my arm. Second day on the job, CEO's assistant's father passes away. She comes in hey, what's our bereavement policy? I look left, I look right, I see not a policy manual in my office. I go, hmm, direct family member. I said, how's three days? She goes, great. Okay, okay done. First policy, done. <laughs> and she's like, wow, he was so cool, you know, how he did that. So all those sequences, you know, start building. And for whatever reason, whether it's because my dad was a minister and I watched him give sermons my, my whole life, but I have built a capacity to help people explain what they're feeling in better ways that they're capable of doing. So if you bring me an issue, I'm able to replay it to you in a way that seems manageable and not so scary and not packed with emotion. So, and we had our fair share. I mean, gosh, when you say 400 to 4,000, that's not the hard part. The hard part was two countries to 17 and three offices to 26 offices in three years. Just like, what? Like, I'm lucky I still have hair and I still have a neck that can rotate. <laughs> you look great. You look great. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody. Your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit lattice.com slash HR Heretics today. That's lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. 
Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. I love that our two products are judgment and credibility. I could not agree more in doing this for almost 24 years and just the work. And, and that, that really is it. And I get, I get hives a lot of times. And they're like, well, what's your, what are the metrics and the business and the metrics and the metrics and the metrics? And it's like, ugh, necessary but not sufficient. And we usually do not lead with what I think is the middleware, the gray matter, all the things that – that make these teams, this organization work from behind the scenes that can usually be distilled down to judgment, credibility, people. And you're helping to facilitate that in ways that founders might not even realize. How do you, maybe you don't combat it, but how do you, how do you answer that question? Well, what, what are the metrics? That's all great judgment, credibility, but what, what do you do here? What, how, what do you create? Well, I think, you, you know, what, uh, what I love about this conversation and listening to the conversation you had with Patty McCord I'll rephrase what Patty said, which is if you're doing HR really well, you are working yourself out of a job. You are making other people better. And the reason I almost didn't come into HR is because I saw so many HR leaders that I'd worked for early in my career building dependencies on themselves out of insecurity. And we all know the worst combination is power and insecurity and a boss who has no children. Like that is the worst combo ever, right? Or in HR, someone who used to be a labor lawyer. Then, then it's like a you know, quadruple whammy because everything's viewed through the lens of this could blow up and you know, let's double down and protect ourselves, right? So I, you know, I think the way I think about this is um, you know, we have a really hard, impossible task, which is compliance and construction. And if I'm the person coming in and saying, here's your development plan and I'm going to make you a great executive, and next day it's knock, knock, we've had a sexual harassment complaint about you and I got to investigate it. I mean, that's just like an impossible way for me to build trust and confidence when you know, I've got this compliance monster that I got to adhere to, which is, you know, necessary, but I also have this constructive notion. So, you know, I, I think you have to find your rhythm, right? And this is the thing that I think uh, a lot of HR people may not appreciate. And let's just take a moment to give ourselves a hug. Like the, if you look at the full domain of, you know, let's take, you know, sourcing, recruiting, onboarding, training, compensation, immigration, relocation, labor law, diversity, uh, you know, now we've got all kinds of like HR analytics and we've got AI coming into the, you know, to the scene to, you know, and then we've got all kinds of systems that the CFO bought that we had no input on that we've got to leverage. And, um, it's really complex. And if you're really good in HR, you're probably excellent at two of those disciplines. And that's and just okay. the job inside the company, right? Like all the stuff outside right. with the world. I mean, let's just tack that on to the, right. to the Sunday. So you're excellent at two, you're okay at like three or four, you can talk your way around another two, and then you got to surround yourself with people who are going to cover all the other places, right? And everyone's portfolio is different. So my suggestion is whenever you're looking at an organization uh, as an HR, you know, potential HR leader in any role, look at the leadership team where they worked before. And that'll tell you a lot of what their expectations are, you know? 
if I had someone from prior to Satya over at Microsoft, I had someone from Microsoft, they are really political. I knew it was a really rough environment. If someone was from Google, they were used to seeing you know, somewhat of a progressive you know, uh, HR practice if there was ex-Yahoo. Like, I want to know the pedigree because uh, you know, it's been a while since I've been practicing actively, about 10 years since I left LinkedIn. But that's always important because you know, that pedigree is going to inform what their expectations are right, around human resources. And if you can kind of get a sense for that, you don't have to start from zero when you go into an organization. You can start with sort of, you know, where they're probably thinking about the function. Steve, what's your take on HR people? You're coming at this from a completely different lens than what I hear generally from HR folks. You're coming at this from a business lens and a problem first lens and first principles lens. I typically hear from HR people like we actually should implement performance reviews right away if we don't have them because we are concerned about compliance. What's your take on those folks? Yeah, I don't think compliance is the goal. I think high performance is the goal and performance management is something that could contribute to that. Um, where we ultimately got to in, in implementing performance reviews is because the CEO, uh, Jeff says, I hate these things. I don't want to do them. I said, okay, well then you go tell the board we're not going to do performance reviews because you don't want to do it. And I'm not doing it. And the biggest reason performance reviews don't stick is because of no executive buy-in. So I'm not even going to waste my time. So you go do it. So he's not ready to do that. He's like, oh, okay, we better, we better do it. So I'm like, okay. Um, and I say that with, with reverence and respect, right? Like he, he was a first time CEO. He, he didn't know. And he'd been more burned probably by that than others. So you know, there's a couple of, for me, there's real benchmarks for someone in the HR evolution of growth. One is, you know, I always like to ask people, where are you in your philosophy of HR? Do you have one? Like, why is HR here? Okay. Because that'll tell you a lot about where they are in their growth. Like, what is our function? What is our purpose? Why are we here? And if I hear something like, um, oh yeah, we, you know, make employees happy. Like, eh, eh, nope, not here to make them happy. We're here to win. It just so happy, it just so happens Happy employees tend to win more, but the goal is not happy. The goal is winning. And if we make happy an objective, we're disabling hard conversations. We're disabling confrontation. We're disabling the storming, forming, norming, you know, the natural evolution of teams. So let's, you know, recognize that not to disable happiness, but the goal is winning. And that means we need to help people have hard conversations. That's why performance reviews are necessary because we need to build that muscle of people being honest and having conversations. But I also subscribe to the Marcus Buckingham School, which is let's talk about strengths more than weaknesses. And if someone's you know, not good at this, and they may never be good at it, but they're really good at these things, so let's design their job to more double down on those things. Um, so, I mean, having I, – I, like I told you, I had the great opportunity to build HR from nothing and to question everything. You know, how many levels – uh, what's the compensation philosophy? How do we want to do all that stuff? And when you do that, it really forces you to, to really, you know, address things that you took for granted earlier in your career. Right. And, uh, and so what, what we finally got up to when I left and we went through four different iterations, but it was quarterly conversations, you know, not a review. Steve, um, I love your, your whole aura around HR, your style, your your directness. I probably wanted. I pro, I'm discerning that you're not the easiest guy to work for, right? If I'm a new HR leader and I'm coming in and I've got my best practices book and all my stuff, like, how, how did you make more of you? How did you push them 
I'm sure it wasn't always comfortable. But what is your philosophy on teaching and literally building great HR leaders? Because I don't think we have enough of them with your makeup, I would go so far as to say today. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You have to ask the people that work for me how, how much of a nightmare I was. And I think, gosh, on LinkedIn, I made a ton of mistakes. I mean, it was new, and I, I made a lot of mistakes. If I were to go do it again, which I never will, but that four years felt like 20. But um, I think that what I tried to do was really make time, value their success, ask them in the interview process, where do you want to go in your career, and how can I help you get there? I mean, that's that's what was refreshing listening to your conversation with Patty. Like, We got to the point in Silicon Valley where – you know, I don't know what the median tenure is right now, but it's somewhere around, you know, a year to 18 months probably. And for engineers, probably a little bit less. So we began our interviews with, hey, when you leave LinkedIn, what do you want to be doing? And people will be like, what? We're talking about my exit. I haven't, have you given me a job offer yet? Like what's going on? And we, we just said, let's have an honest conversation. Like we know you're probably not going to stay and that's fine, but let's make this the best part of your journey, right? So how can we do that? And so I tried to do that with my team. Uh, try to be pretty clear on what my expectations are and also try to be supportive of them. Like what's the biggest thing blocking you and how can I untangle that, right? And we we were really, when you're growing like we were at LinkedIn, it is really hard because the company's changing every day and every department's got to build different and better processes to try to support the growth. And then we had, you know, my biggest regret for that whole time that I was there, and there was a ton of them, but this is probably the top of the list, was we would start every year with the planning cycle, and Jeff was so anti-big company, which I loved. But we would start the year with a headcount plan of like 200, and by the end of the year, it was like 800. I'm like, when you don't plan, we don't have the resources to recruit. When we don't have the resources, you and your managers are kicking my team in the face because you didn't plan, Right. And so I didn't probably get clarity on that until like four years later after the PTSD started to wear off. Like, wait a second, why were we the bad? Like, you guys didn't ever tell it. You didn't never accurately forecast anywhere close to what we were doing, right? And then nobody at the time, and this is hard to fathom right now, at the time we were growing, this is 29, 10, 11, really bursting, there was no other hyper-growth you know, farm or factory. We were all doing it at the same time. VMware and Google and all the Google founders were, you know, hard to reach on their islands and their yachts. So they didn't want to come work for us. So we had to figure out our own way. And that's really hard. I mean, really hard. Jeff, Jeff Wiener is a legendary CEO and I have heard he can be a total asshole. What was it like working with Jeff? It was really intense. I'll give you a great story. I learned so much from Jeff. Um, you know, he's the classic CEO where it's like, Hey, there's a brick wall. I was like, no, there's not. I see a hole right over there. You're going to go right through it. And so many assumptions I had about HR, Jeff would question. And most of the time he was right. You know, like, no, we can do it. I was like, Oh, you're, what you're saying is you're willing to look past the ramifications and say, we're just going to do it. I was like, I would never do that. And it's like, okay, we'll do it. So one day I walk into Jeff's office and, um, something really bad had happened. We've been hacked by some hackers and they stole passwords, like millions of them. And this was a PR nightmare. And Jeff was as calm as I've ever seen him. I'm like, hey, what? you know, we all thought you were going to go nuts, you know, and start, you know, taking the a verbal, you know, AK-15 at people, and, you know, and taking people. No, not at all. He was calm. He said, Steve, you need to understand something about me. And I'm grateful this was early, earlier in our relationship. He said, I live off of intensity. And if people aren't as intense as I am in the moment, I'm going to create a situation that's going to make them intense. 
And so I'm like, whoa. So this moment is really intense, and you're just right in your element. It's like, this is it. And he's like, yep. And so that was a, you know, a really, that was a great um, learning experience for me. Like, don't go in there. And he, Jeff would never want to just chit chat. It's like, and he's got a lot to give and he's a really intense student, really, really smart. So, uh, so that was, you know, clue number one about who Jeff was. The second uh, great story about Jeff is we would have as an executive team, um, employee surveys every six months and everyone, every manager would get the results. Like, do you inspire people? Is your team clear in their goals? You know, sort of the Gallup 12, but we sort of tweaked it a little bit. And on the executive team, we would share as a group what our scores were, what our team thought of us, including Jeff, whose results were those of us in the room, like 12 of us. And every year for like two and a half years, Jeff got the lowest score among us of do you inspire your team? Okay. And it was killing him. Now, was it a bad score on a scale of one being low and five being high? It was like a 4.2. It was a good score, but it was less than all of ours, okay? So he pulls me in the office one day. He's like, hey, for the last year, I see this bulletin board right next to me. He's like, it's been my number one priority to inspire people. You know, I'm just, I'm at my wit's end. Like, what what do you think I can do? And I said, Jeff, let me ask you a question. And this was one of those moments, my hair is still rising on my arm, just remembering the story, because it was just so, I was very proud of this moment. I said, Jeff, when you meet with your team, where do you meet with them? He goes, right here in this office. I said, okay, when you're meeting with them, what's usually the issue? Something going well or something broken? He goes, oh, my job is to, and then he stopped right there. And he realized that office was a place where bad shit was getting discussed and uncomfortable stuff. And he's like, okay. And from that day forward, most of his one-on-ones were walking around outside in the building. It was never there. And those uh, who are listening to this conversation, you know, and I, I use that to explain one of my fears about this more remote world of work, which is, um, you know, in a remote world of work, most of our interactions are scheduled. They're not informal or, or they're not together in a, you know, unplanned way. When you're with your child and you say, we need to have a talk and you sit down, the walls come up. When you're driving them to school, and there's no agenda, and you're both looking forward, and there's no eye contact at each other, that's when the real stuff comes out. And so Jeff became a master. And the the part that I loved about working with him is he learned so fast. Like, I didn't even have to get through. And the second part of that story that of the hacking incident in Jeff's, I, I believe, in his growth as a leader, was he got in front of the company and took full ownership for that. He's like, I'm going to fix this. This is on me. And he was terrified. He's like, Steve, it's really uncomfortable for me. He became vulnerable for the first time. And guess what happened? He got back to his office and his email had never been more filled with employees going, oh my God, I love you. You're the best. And he saw, oh, being vulnerable was really a superpower that he'd never tested before. Right. And that was really cool. Yeah. I talked to a lot of HR leaders around because they a lot focus on the data and the programs and going in with right a point of view and solving over the, the the Achilles heel is the employees and the feedback and it's it's one thing that you can't really disprove with data or a product or this or that it's what do people think of you and whether you, you know, agree or not this is it and i don't you say that in a, a way to weaponize it it was it always 
open the door for a very authentic and vulnerable conversation, which then opened up different doors. And, you know, running around using that again as a weapon and all the time is not the right thing. But if you can package that in a way, it's very, very powerful. It is powerful. And those of the listeners who are HR leaders who may be struggling for, you know, for whatever reason, uh, that's our destiny to be struggling, I guess, all the time. I got some, I got some advice for you. You don't own the you don't own HR. Your leadership team does. Your job is to get them to own it. So I, you know, you want to make sure something doesn't work in a company, make it an HR program. That's like destined for failure. Don't. Get your leadership team to advocate it, get in front of them, help them, support them, coach them. Um, and this was probably the biggest fight Jeff and I had in the early days. He's like, you own the compensation strategy. Go, oh, you want me to own how we all get paid? You're good. You're going to sign off on it. Oh yeah. He goes the, you know, our CFO, he owns the finance, our legal, uh, she owns that. I was like, no, no, you own it. I said, I'll help you. I'll architect it. I'll propose it to you. But you as a leadership team, you got to own, this is our company. You don't want to, you don't want me to bureaucratize some sort of system that you guys don't like. Like, let's do this together. And I think that's where some of the insecurities of people who feel like I need to have my fiefdom in HR and we need to operate in a black box that's just a failed strategy, you know, and you got to make other people better and show them the challenges that you're, you're, you're facing and help them realize why you being the devil's advocate sometimes is uncomfortable, but it's necessary. Uh, and if you do it with respect and reverence, I think they'll appreciate it, you know, even more to the point where they'll start coming to you and saying, what do you think of this in advance? Which is, I think Patty told a really great story how, you know, you're right more than you're wrong. And so, you know, credibility and judgment, what I like to say about those two is if you don't have good judgment, you will not be credible. And if you're not credible, no one cares about your judgment. So you look for those problems to show your measure and really try to, you know, help, you know, see those really hard, gnarly things as opportunities for people to see your creativity in that. Steve, one of the bigger mistakes I made earlier in my career was trying to own culture, trying to own comp, trying to be the person that owned everything. And you're right, that was a failed strategy. How did you actually convince Jeff and the rest of the leadership team that they were the owners of that? I had a few um, uh, advantages. Uh, number one, I had a sales leader, Mike Gamson, who was more in front of me on culture than anyone had ever met in my life. Now, I don't know about you, but the sales leader is usually the person you're like, I'm watching you, that offsite in Vegas. No, you're not. They always choose Vegas. <laughs> I know. I almost started uh, like a short book for us saying, you know, it's called uh, HR translation. Like when you say this, HR hears this. When you say we're having a sales conference in Vegas, HR hears I'll be firing someone on Monday. You know, like, for sure. or if you say our comp ranges aren't high enough, you're telling me really you have no ability to sell the company on anything but money. You know, how did you convince Jeff and the leadership team that they were the owners of culture? They were the owners of comp and you were just the facilitator. Right. Okay. So I, number one, I had Mike Gamson, who was a head of sales, who really his patch was almost all of our field operations. So that was a huge safety valve I had and a leader in that he wasn't, he didn't have a sales kickoff meeting talking about the number or your quota. It was about our values. Right. And so that was amazing. And we used to have salespeople we'd hire from Salesforce. And like, what, what, when are we going to get to the number? And we'd be like, no, relation. Relationships matter, trust and integrity, honesty, these things. And so that was that was really, really valuable. And then we really had a debate culture on the leadership team where we really, you know, tried to hammer it out. And I think 
most of my execs, we had probably 50-50 ex-Yahoo uh, and ex-Google was the majority, some, some Adobe and some scattering like me from Cisco and other places. You know, we, we said, you know, there was a general like, yeah, let's do it differently. You know, let, let's try to, let's try to build this a little bit differently. And they really took, uh, for whatever reason, I was dealt a hand where like people really wanted to own their stuff, you know, and they really felt the passion. So my job was to try to come up with something somewhat consistent, right? The biggest difference was how sales wanted to use stock and how product and engineering wanted to use stock. And the fight was most companies give a little bit more to your engineering and then the next level is GNA and then the lowest level is sales in terms of equity um, substance because sales is more cash oriented, right? And so when it became pretty clear that the value of those shares was going to be a whole heck of a lot, that became a, a bit of a challenge. But that consistency of like we would debate stuff and work it out rather than me in some black box – and I think I, I had a hand in not, not making decisions in the early days, sort of like putting it out there for the team to decide. And Jeff, Jeff's just wired that way. He's like, no, 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 HR is not going to do this. We're going to do this as a leadership team. So I'll give him the, the blessing on that. The second thing is I've never – I've always worked for a company that said people are number one. I never had worked for a company until LinkedIn where the operating priorities were people first. So it's usually – when you'd have a company meeting, it's like, okay, here's our, you know, deliverables as a company, you know, engineering, sales, operations, here's what we're doing, here's the M&A landscape, blah, blah, blah. We would begin every company, all hands meeting every other week, building a world-class team, number one. Okay, what's going on there? How's our pipeline doing? How's our internal promotion process doing? How's our learning and development classes going? And so forth and so on. So that made it, you know, in the minds of people, like, we got to do this well. And everyone owns this, right? Which was great. And that, you know, Jeff, Jeff was amazing. I don't know where he got that from. I'd like to take credit for it, but it's all him. Yeah. Qu- quick question, Steve, before we pivot uh, to remote. The transparency factor with comp, I think we've all been living with that, especially the last, you know, five years or so. And show me the salary, not just my salary and my market range, show me everyone else's on my team. And were, were you all transparent with comp? And if not, where did you push back and... Kind of what did you share with, with the whole employee base versus not? Why? Um, I would say we tried to be where we could be as much. Um, you know, and you've got Glassdoor, which is if you're hiring, you know, immigrants, you have to, you know, pose the, range, pose the ranges there. Now it's required by law, obviously, to post uh, the ranges. But people could, could back into it. We found because we were recruiting so much that the information is going to get out. So we were like, hey, let's just share the stuff. Um, what the, the, you know, the ranges are, it was not a big issue for us. It, we don't have time to, you know, to hide that kind of stuff. I think we're, where things got really complicated. I mean, every day was complicated, but the day we went public, okay. Our share price went berserk. It was going up and down like a, you know, shock absorber, you know, hundred down to 70, down to, you know, 95 down to 60 and all the candidates, that were in play were terrified about having their start date when they'd get priced be the wrong number, the high one, right? They want the low one. So we pivoted to RSUs. And I said uh, to the leadership team, I don't want RSUs. I want only upside. You know, I don't want the safety of a lower number. I'm here for a escape velocity opportunity. So we made a decision as a leadership team that the executives would only get options and the rest of the staff would have RSUs. 
And that was problem because all the employees perceived that as a, Hey, that's better. And so what we did, we had to backtrack and we said, okay, when we're going through the conversion for new hire, if we'd offered you an option and we're going to convert it to RSUs, which is about, you know, a third is usually the number that, you know, uh, most organizations use when they do the conversion, uh, we'll give you the choice. You decide, right? What you want, which is an impossible thing. And I didn't like it because the, when I talked to Patty about where they went wrong, and I had two Netflix board members on my board, so I knew a lot about what their comp strategy was. They would give people, here's a pile of cash, and you buy as many shares as you want to buy. And they said what would happen inevitably is people would, when the stock would rise, they'd buy it, and so they bought high. <laughs> they'd never buy it when it was low. They would you know, not buy it. So you had two people doing the same thing with a huge difference in their compensation, and that was just something, unintended consequence of just human nature. Well, and most people don't understand the difference between options and RSUs. And so did you guys try and educate them on that? 100%, 100%. I mean, we did so much. You know, so we had, before we went public, we had all kinds of financial advisors come in and we had to be careful about not favoring one investor firm over another because all your companies that are taking you out, they want all the wealth management that goes with it. They want the whole thing. And by the way, that is such a racket. This is something I never understood until I was in the moment. Morgan Stanley, I think, was the company that took us out. So what Morgan Stanley does is they go on a roadshow with your CEO to every investor pre-IPO and say, here's our business plan, here's the model, here's why you should invest, and they get a sense for what the market's willing to pay. So they told us it was like from it went from like 28 to by the end of the roadshow, 35, okay? The day we went public, it opened at 95. So who gets the spread of 35 to 95, Morgan Stanley does. We don't because we sold our shares to Morgan Stanley for 35 to, or you know whatever. And they said, okay, so we'll go sell it now. <laughs> I'm like, in one day, you guys made all that. So I'm furious. I'm like, that is robbery. This is the system's broken. Those are a bunch of crooks. And so that's when our CFO said, wait a second. I need to explain something. He didn't look worried at all. He's like, Steve, we only put out to the market this much. Now that we know what the market's willing to bear. We're going to go out with this much and we're not going to go through Morgan Stanley. We're going to go right to the market. I was like, good on you. So then I realized, okay, so because we, you know, we built this thing, us, you guys didn't do anything and you're lucky that you're the broker, you know? And so um, it was a real, it was a real racket. After that, you know, the whole secret filing thing came out where you don't have to do an S1 now. You can do that. Direct and listings. And Robin Hoods and all these other things have, have come through to sort of, yes. you know, democratize it a little bit more. But that, that drove me nuts when I found out about it. I, I love that story. I, I love bet. that story because direct listings were really popular towards the end yeah. of the most recent run-up. And then those companies have been mm -hmm. fucking hammered, a lot of them that actually mm -hmm. ended up doing that. But this is the reason why so many people were frustrated with the old model. And like everything mm -hmm. in life, everything has trade-offs. Right. For sure. Right. So I love, I love in your book, uh, Steve, you talked about those serendipitous moments of you never know who you're going to meet and where, and it creates different opportunities. The same thing happens at work, right, with colleagues. Like I could see no one in the hallway, and we're in two different departments, and bam, we, we chat about something, and something else takes off. And the distributed remote nature of things kind of makes that more difficult. <laughs> and I, I just would love your take on how do you counsel organizations to try and create those as much as possible? In this environment and what impact is that having? Mm -hmm. We don't know yet, honestly. We are, you know, this is the hardest part for most of the business leaders that I talk to around the world. And this is the biggest question, which is, hey, Steve, who's doing this right? I go, nobody. 
And every time in life when we face something hard, what do we do? Let's go benchmark. Who's the benchmark? I go, it's time to be the benchmark. And so they say, Steve, stay at home, hybrid, you know, remote. And I say, yes. And they go, no, no, we're asking you which one. I go, yes. Mm-hmm. I said, you're going to have to try. And he goes, well, you know, that might not be fair. You know, we might not have fair. I said, do you pay everyone the same? No. Okay, so you're over the fairness hurdle. So let's not worry about being fair because you already pay people differently. I said, you, you don't know. And I said, when, by the way, when you say hybrid, that's like telling a waiter at a restaurant who asked you what you'd like to eat. You say food, like food. Like, do you want warm food, cold food, vegan food, you know, plant-based food? Um, and so hi- there's so many forms of hybrid. You know, what I love about this moment is that we're asking questions that have never been asked. Why do we meet? <laughs> Why are we together? What's the objective? What are we, what are we doing there? What, who came up with this five-day workweek idea? That's so healthy, I think. Just like taking HR down to the studs like I did at LinkedIn. Like, we never asked those. Now we're asking those questions. The problem for a lot of leaders, and this is where all you people who are all aggro around remote work need to step back and appreciate Every CEO who's never done remote at the scale we're doing now is knows what the outcomes are when we work together and have no idea what the long-term outcome is when we're remote. So they're scared. They're scared. They have no long you know, evidence, and so they could take a risk because, oh, we're going to hedge that talent wants to work more flexibly, so we're going to try it. But they don't know. They don't know is there going to be cultural erosion or cultural strengthening. What about team building? What about connectedness? What about innovation? We just don't know. And my gut tells me, because I'm on the era of that's how we did it, uh, together, in person, um, especially when you're growing an, an early stage organization, going through puberty, like real-time problem solving is valuable. Now, we're going to learn, and there are a lot of really cool examples of, you know, hey, the way it was wasn't all great, you know? I'm getting back hours of my life. And the biggest miss, I think, in the conversation is employees are saying, uh, I'm more productive at home. But what they're really meaning is my life is more productive at home, okay? Not just work, everything. Connect relationship equity, seeing my kids when they come home from school, which I never was there for before, and it's a beautiful moment. I'm not going to give that up, the long commutes, the paying for gas, all that other stuff. Um, And then there's a lot of youth that are saying, gosh, I just – you know, I went to school to be part of a team and now it's just me and the screen. Like that is not interesting to me. Like I want some kind of social setting. And you ask most people, not most, you ask a lot of people, where'd you meet your spouse? Work. At the office. Work. <laughs> At the office. <laughs> now maybe in this increased, you know, online dating thing, you know, it's gonna it's gonna change. But I do think that it's so early to tell. And I have no, you know, uh bias one way or the other. I'm leaning towards in-person as, pretty, as human beings were made to sort of be, be together. And there's an energy there that's really hard to put your finger on. But I remain open to lots of really, you know, um, wh- one person might be interesting for you guys to speak to about this, Barbie Graver, who was uh, also at Netflix for a while, who was uh, head of HR for a few companies that started remote um, and, uh, she has a real strong, like really strong point of view on, come on, you're just saying that because that's what you know. And the whole water cooler thing wasn't fair to begin with, you know? So I think we're learning. And I think the best thing a company can do is not take a position right now and say, for the next three months, we're going to try this. We're going to learn. We're going to see how our customers feel, how you feel, how the business feels, how our investors feel. And then we're going to pivot and adjust. Are you good with that? Okay, great. Yeah. You know, I love that. Of like, frame it, frame on, it as an experiment. 
Well, right. yeah, exactly. And, and I've, I don't know about you two, but I've been pretty disappointed, um, even in myself in a lot of ways. And I think we do have, Colleen said it on our session, Nolan, right? We have kind of a copycat type culture. What are they doing? What are they doing? And, and I feel like everyone's just been like, the questions we're asking around this just have not been good enough. It's, it's in office or out. Very binary. It's all mm-hmm. or nothing. It's office. It's also not have contextual. A bunch of real- these companies, and, and the, these companies are different. These companies are way different. These companies are different, and no one's asking, why the hell do we care? Forget about the building and if it's empty and the money's – I mean, I understand that's important, but why are people coming together? And and just now, like I'm hearing now, more moments that matter, and which I love, but why are we getting people together or not, right? People can go in three days a week, and you can check your box, and they're not doing jack shit. They're just sitting there. and not t- So – I don't know. I've been disappointed in how we've been thinking about this. I completely agree. Going slow and taking as it comes versus coming fast out the gate. Here's our point of view a week after. You know, it's just and you saw all these companies clawing it back. Just kidding. We made a mistake. Yeah, Steve, I really appreciate your intellectual honesty on this. And then I I, I really I have a take on this that I want your feedback on, which is companies that are pre product market fit are much different than companies that are post product market fit. And then that are much different than companies with like incredible, incredibly deep network effects. LinkedIn had an incredibly deep network effect. Every company that has deep network effects ultimately goes hybrid or remote or whatever, because it becomes a function of getting as much talent as possible. I think at the earliest stage, it is probably better to be in person, given that there are trade-offs that you won't be able to hire everybody in the world, but that's not the problem you're trying to solve right now. The problem you're trying to solve right now is getting to product market fit. Do you, do you view the world similarly? What's your thoughts on that? I do. And the other, the other part of this that a lot of leaders I speak to fail to appreciate, but it's, a, it's an obvious one in retrospect, which is we're all going to this remote from a different perspective. Maybe my company's been around 10 years and everyone knows each other. We haven't had a lot of churn. When we go remote, we've got that muscle memory. We know what's what. If you're going remote and you're adding 50% growth to your workforce, you know the degree of complexity is just far greater than a team that's going more remote that's already got the muscle memory. It's not going through lots of turnover. You know, So we're, how every team's approaching it, the kind of business that folks are in, is very, very different. And so, um, but I generally agree with you. The earlier stage, earlier product market fit, sort of where you're in the evolution, I do think the real-time problem solving is pretty, pretty, pretty essential to you. And I've not seen that realized in a super remote framework yet. I want to talk about blitzscaling. So Reid Hoffman coined this term uh, and, and he wrote a book about it. You were essentially head of blitzscaling at LinkedIn. And what I read, Reed's book about this, it seems like, oh, like once you have product market fit and you just like, boom, you step on the gas and you go, it's never that clean internally. And I'm just, I want to get your take on what didn't go well with blitzscaling at LinkedIn and what you learned about that. Biggest uh, mistake I have for you is at some point we realized, hey, I think we're going to, we're going to make this thing. And uh, so let's go. Uh, look around the table. Has anyone here run a billion dollar business? And the answer was nope, not even close. So, well, let's go get some people who run a billion dollar business who can teach us and show us the way. So we did. We went out and got two hires in um, you know different parts of the business, marketing and sales, that had led you know billion dollar portfolios, and they both failed miserably. And they failed because they didn't build a billion dollar industry. 
They just led a billion-dollar industry. So they would come in and say, okay, where's my six admins? And uh, you know, then we can get going. We're like, we don't have admins here. You know, and if we do, they're shared by three executives. Like, what are you talking about? And they were just paralyzed in fear of how chaotic things were. And so, you know, that's when we realized at that early phase, blitzkilling, you really need builders, man. You need people that just groove off of crazy, that realize the highest source of energy in the universe is chaos, and that can be a good thing. And they they are good people at bringing order from nothing. Uh, and they're hard, hard. They were really hard to find back then. So that was a huge mistake, you know, that we made. Reed has admitted, like when Jeff came in, Jeff came in because Reed made a bad mistake in his first CEO hire. So he was first CEO, and then he hired this guy Dan Nye. But the, there was massive confusion in the organization. Well, who should we go to? Should we go to Reed, who's basically the human embodiment of Yoda? If you've ever met Reed, like the guy is like incredible. Um, and I think Lucas probably looked to Reed for inspiration when he thought of the Yoda character. But anyway, so you know, should we go to Reed or should we go to Dan? And Reed in, you know, has said, like, I confused that. I didn't let Dan run the show. So when Jeff came, Reed stopped coming to the office so much and he wasn't there so much. So that, you know, differentiation gets to, I think, one of the, you know, challenges that every organization faces when you blitz scale is, uh, as Jeff used to say, Jobs are going to outgrow people. People are not going to tell you that they've the job's outgrown them. Like is any pitcher going to say, hey, coach, take me out. The game's a little too intense for me right now. I think there needs to be a sub, you know? No. And so how are we going to do that? And then when you get really successful and you both have had these rides, there's a lot of money riding on it. There's a lot of reputational equity. Like why did you leave LinkedIn? Like you knucklehead. Like that thing was on a rocket ship. Like – Something bad must have happened, you know? So when when it's not working and jobs have outgrown people, like how do we deal with that in a way with gravitas and respect um, but also speed because we need someone in who kind of can help get us to the next level, right? And some people are going to grow and roll and some people aren't, right? And that's really that's really hard. It's really, really hard. And And also when you've not had leaders go through that, they're not thinking about that necessarily, um, they're not paying attention to that. So that was, I think there, there's a, a bunch of things. Reed was, I sat next to Jeff and then the office on the other side was Reed and any chance I got, and those two guys, Jeff and Reed could not have been more different. I mean, uh, ha, I'm so happy that relationship worked, but as human beings, pff, very, you know, sort of yin and yang, if you will, like they're very different, but boy, that worked really, really well. Those are the ones that come to mind, Nolan, when you ask the question. The hiring builders versus hiring people who inherited the business at scale is such an interesting lens. How did you guys figure that out? Like, how did you actually like assess for builders? And because a lot of people who have done this never want to fucking do it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Was it the pedigree? Like you mentioned I, I, I looking will, at where they in that camp right yeah. there. No way. <laughs> It's really hard. Yeah. And it's like there's never – I used to go into my one-on-ones with Jeff and say, do you hear that sound? And he goes, what's that? I go, those are all the balls I'm dropping right now. I was like, I, you know. And then he would go, Steve, I told you, just prioritize the top three things and focus on those. I go, Jeff, when I bring the top three to you, I come out with 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 2A, 2B. So it's like it's 15 in disguise. Like, you know, I can't do everything. And as a perfectionist, as someone who really has a you know, high you know, self-confidence, I don't want to let someone else do my – I want to do my stuff. And my biggest problem was you know, saying no. Uh, so that was – I mean that's just sort of the, 
the challenge is what are you going to focus on? And I think that's where Jeff got really good is he would sort he would sort of pull me off of the ceiling and say, I just focus on this, you know, and, and he had to do that a lot because he, I never saw Jeff overwhelmed, but all of us generally would get there uh, a lot of times. And, and so what do we, what do we look for? We look for, you know, people had been in similar kind of crazy growth environments uh, and who had, a, who had a little bit of an edge, you know, like you got to, you got to have an edge, and we got. I don't know, uh, Kelly. Did you know David Hankey at all when you were at uh, at Yahoo? And the name, yes, but not personally. So he, this is another great story about Jeff and sort of the early days of LinkedIn. So David was known as a if there was a head of operations. You know, we're talking about keep the systems together. You know, the engineers do their thing, but they keep the, the operations keeps the systems together. David was a swashbuckler. I mean, no sentence would not include several curse words. And Jeff looked at him like, I don't know if this company's ready for him. So we got the most prim and proper people in operations to interview David and say, you know, are you, are you going to be scared of this guy? Is, it, is he going to be cultural kryptonite? Is he going to just break us? Uh, and they're like, no, we love him. And we love the fact that he's colorful and, and all that. Um, but he had a, he's like the crazier it was, the happier he got, similar to Jeff. Like, and that, it took us a while to start to identify that, but we would seek that in your experiences and, and, you know, and things like that. And the other similar thing that really worked for us, Nolan, in terms of how we identified people that would really groove on us was we got our head of engineering, um, Kevin Scott, who's now the CTO of Microsoft, published a book uh, recently. He came to us because he'd been at uh, Google for a while and all these people were hired above him who'd never done what he'd done inside the company. He's like the, you know, the shiny new object is coming over me and he's getting, you know, uh, people getting hired over him. So like, well, so let's not have that happen here. Come on in here. Let's build this right. And, you know, we were able to get him because they had sort of that cultural norm over there that he just really despised, you know? Steve, you you mentioned, and so did Patty in our chat, that it's actually a great time to be in this business, right? It's, it's blank slate, it's new practices, not best practices. I mean, we can lean into redefining all of this, but yet you, got, you both would never do it again until hell froze over. What, why, why is that? Because I'm hearing that from a lot of HR leaders. I don't want to go back in that seat. What, what is that phenomenon? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, honestly, if I'm honest, I'm like, I fear, I fear myself. I really fear myself. Like, I am not good at saying no, haven't, haven't been. I've gotten better over time. Um, I'm a perfectionist. I take, take a lot on. The best advice I got when I became the first, uh, head, first time head of HR was from a boss I had at AMD, Yolanda Gonzalez. And I said, what should I know, Yolanda? Like, I've never been head of HR and I'm going to be going to this Canadian company. And she said, you got more stuff to worry about. You're going to have to figure out how to deal with all that stuff. And I don't miss that. I don't miss. And here's the, the, the biggest heartache I had over that experience for me was having three young kids. When I was home, I wasn't home. And uh, I re- what broke it for me that led to my final you know, decision to go, which was very like on the moment. Um, I didn't think about it very long, but it was a Friday. And my son, uh, it was the fall and it was like trick or treat or something coming up. And he's like, Friday's like, dad, are you gonna be home early tonight? And I said, Oh yeah. He goes eight, nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's real. Oh my gosh. What have I done? Right. And so I had an enormous parental guilt. Uh, I feel like I've sort of, you know, made up for that. Uh, maybe much to my 
uh, now teenage boys disappointment that I'm all up in their stuff. But, um, I think that was probably, that was probably it for me. Is it a, is it like a, a contact high? Absolutely. You know, doing it. It's like really, really great. I'm very proud of the stuff I did. The LinkedIn stuff wasn't the most satisfying career spot for me. It was another position that I had in Canada, but I'm so proud what we did and the, the culture that lasts today. But it's like, I've, I've done that and I will coach anyone who's in that situation. I got you. Um, but no, I'm not ready for full, full time. Yeah. I feel like you just described what I'm feeling as far as the balance, but loving, loving the drug. I mean, it's very addictive. Yeah, Um, it is. It it is. So just to wrap up, we'd like to have a a rapid fire segment. We, we call talent rules and two quick, quick questions for you. One is who's your, been your best hire in your career and why for any reason? Okay. Uh, let's see. I, I thought, uh, of someone who is sort of like way early in my career, but I'm going to go with an internal move that we made one time. So it wasn't an outside hire. So we had an individual named Armin Vitanian, talked about him in my book. It's an incredible story. He's sitting in accounting and he was happy in accounting. I know it's hard for us HR people to realize that finance people like what they do, our mortal enemy, those finance people. Armin was training to be an Olympian for the Armenian uh, Olympic team as a marathon runner. And he was failing... Uh, in his capacity to train. He wasn't putting in enough hours on his job and we, it was like really wearing on him. So he comes in and we knew this was about to happen. So the CFO also named Steve, Steve Sordello, and I knew this was about to happen. And so Armin comes in and said he wanted to meet with both of us and he hands us his resignation. Okay, here is someone who we thought was a cultural ambassador to LinkedIn, just a great, everyone loved him. Uh, and he was just, you know, so into fitness and this is early days for us so he hands me the note and i rip it up right in front of him and he's like what are you doing i said armin there's no way we are gonna let you leave this organization we want to help you realize your dream so we're gonna ask if you would be interested in building a fitness program for us you know a wellness center this is before wellness became mental wellness this was back in the you know what and so i said would you be willing to do that and he goes you would do that and i said yeah and it can be part-time and help us out with some facilities too, but we want you to introduce that here if you would like to do that. He starts crying. The CFO starts crying. I mean, I'm in HR. I'm crying all the time, so I'm start crying. And that I'll never forget that moment because it was us living, this will be the best place that you've ever worked. And the CFO was signing up to put you know, his person over the, probably because he could control the budget with a, an accountant over the wellness, but so that was just one of my favorite, favorite stories. That's uh, really you know, cool. Sort of an internal hire. Yeah. That's fucking awesome, Steve. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Steve Krein story. is also very cool. <laughs> we do. We do cry a lot. <laughs> Steve, I want to know what your favorite interview question is that gets you the best signal on candidates. Um, all right. I'm going to answer this, but I'm going to preface it by saying I think interviews are the worst predictors of uh, hiring success. You know, and unfortunately, we don't have a replacement. I wish the world would give us the opportunity for everyone to take us, you know, like a three month pause every three years and we get to try out another job. And if we like it, we stay. And if we don't, we go back. Work trials are the future. A thousand percent. Yeah. And it's really, really hard. So what I what I I don't have a question, but I begin every interview with please walk me through everything on your CV. Why did you leave? What are you most proud of? Um, and that usually it's a story I'm looking for and I'm trying to see how I fit into that story and I'm trying to see what stands out and what they're saying, what boss was great, what boss was a nightmare and what the key considerations were. 
what I'm trying to do in an interview is, and there's, uh, I was talking to some students in Portugal last week, and I'm like, listen, most people don't know how to interview. So my advice to you is control it and say, these are the five to 10 things I want to land because they don't know how to interview. And most of them who are really bad, they want you to like them. So that's what they're trying to do. So don't let them talk. You may think it's all good. They're not asking me any questions. That's a fail, right? So, so, t so take control. What I'm trying to do is get the interviewee to stop giving me what they think I want to hear. And we're all conditioned with all these blah, blah. You know, Tell me about a weakness. Oh, my weakness is I work too hard. Total bullshit. You know, it's like, oh, God. Total you know, bullshit. <laughs> I don't know how to delegate. <laughs> right, right, right. People just are so, you know, they're just, they think I'm just like, oh, you know, overtaking everyone with my work ethic. You know, like, come on, man. So, uh, yeah, so that's one that I just like, just let's have a human conversation. You want to bring in st whatever, you know, bring, bring it to me. But I want to know who, sort of who you are. And that's what, you know, when I think about, I just did my first pitch on the future of artificial intelligence and what it means for, for HR and why I'm excited. And I'm more terrified than I am excited, if I'm honest. But why I'm excited is because we're going to be able to really find who people really are and match them to opportunities that really fit who they are in the future, I think, better than we ever have. Uh, and we got to get to it could be creepy, could be exciting phase first in terms of what we know. But, you know, who I am as an individual, like, we're just not servicing that stuff right now. Like, what, what shaped me? My parents' divorce. Is that anywhere in my CV? No. What shaped me was getting kicked out of South Africa when I was seven years old and having to learn to speak American and getting teased mercilessly by kids. That shaped me. You know, like, the, no one's talking about that. Like, can I adapt? Oh, yeah, I got you. I've lived in four different countries and six different industries. Like, are you paying attention to that stuff, right? And I think... I think what AI will do, it will, it will mitigate the bad interviewers out there a little bit more because we don't know how to do it, generally speaking, right? Even in HR, by the way. That's so, music to my ears. I do not like interviewing. I am not yeah. great at it. Nobody so. does, yeah. Kelly. Nobody does. It turns Nobody out does. everyone thinks it's full of shit, and it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of it are these words, interviewing, performance review. I mean, these words fucking suck. We have yeah. to change them. It's right. It's and that's, you know, this is a big This is a big topic for me. We need to change the language of work, like things like loyalty, things like happiness. Come on, really? What is loyalty? I say today people are loyal to learning. They're not loyal to a company. Make me better for the future. Don't promise me a job. If you did, I'm not going to believe you. But if you make me better, whether we part ways or not, it's all good. And by the way, yeah, care about me for my whole career, right? I loved in your book, I think it was, I don't know what, what company it was, but people were bonused on whether or not their employees stayed. That's insane to me. I know. I, I have had that bonus. I don't know if you guys have, but that, that I, I just, and Patty described it really well. It's like, okay, so why are you guys measuring retention? Because we haven't come up with any new ones. Yeah, exactly. You know, we need a new map for a new world of work, right? And and we've got we to do a better job of that. Totally. All right, Steve, this has been incredible, but our audience is founders, execs, and employees and so the last thing I want to ask you is, do you have advice for, for our audience uh, about what they can do to better prepare themselves for 2024? Uh, advice I have for leaders basically going into 2024 is recognize that learning and growth is part of the new compensation stack of the future of work. And I'm not talking about classes with your professors from MIT, Stanford, Cal. I'm talking about new assignments, new experiences, new opportunities in role will unlock energy that will get the work not to feel like work. As Simon says, you know, it's all about the why and it's all about the how. So 
we are increasingly finding that to find qualified people is increasingly impossible. We, I began my career, you don't hire someone unless you're 95% qualified. Today, I think we're around 60, 65. So how are you going to fill that gap? You're going to re-engineer the job so I don't need an extra 30, 40% that I can't find, or I'm going to fill it by moving people around. We're going to have to move from a buy talent economy to a build talent economy. That is the future. So as you're thinking about how to lay the foundations, don't be so worried about, I don't have all the experience. I need. You want that experience because you want to accelerate your opportunity to, you know, to thrive, but you also uh, want it because you don't know how to grow people. You don't know how to develop people. And if you can get comfortable with that, that's going to lower your risk of not being able to recruit so well because that experienced talent pool is not never going to come back, I believe, in this economy right now. Amen, Steve. So yeah, great. Cool. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for having me. Oh, where is that? Gotcha. Teach you how to use technology, Kelly. Just fuck off. Put you in that squared, <laughs> put you in that boxing ring. Dude, yeah, so what is your story? Did you, you have like, fuck you yeah, have I, am a, I have an amateur career. Let's go. All right, so the, the the thing that everyone should know is is that I started <laughs> MMA like three months ago, and every <laughs> I do it every Monday, and the reason I do it every Monday at 9 a.m. is because I get my ass kicked by a guy who had seven fights in the UFC. And so literally, my week can only go up from there. It is the very bottom and the, and the entire you humiliation should... of Monday morning. And so I no started filming it. Started MMA because Zuck does it down the street from where I live. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but it's like, no matter how many people hate me for the <laughs> open to work badge. <laughs> open to work. Ramsey will kick my ass <laughs> on Monday. And it's just all it's just all easy from there. I've gotten trolled so much. Hey, don't, hey, open to work. I'm like, fuck. Well, life is this green fucking badge I'm dreaming about. Um, so anyways, Kelly, we're going to shift from the open to work badge uh, because I've been burned at the stake on LinkedIn. I am not upset that we're shifting. Okay. To, okay. I think, a much more vanilla topic, uh, which is hate speech in the office. Uh, and the reason why is because of what's going on in Israel. And there's been a couple of companies who have had employees make comments in public Slack channels inside the company, like about what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And in, in a couple of cases, one at Apple, I believe the other one was at mm -hmm. Wix. Those companies have terminated those employees. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to get your take on this and what, what you're seeing, if there's anything going on right now inside of Pendo or how you guys are, are communicating uh, about what is okay and not okay inside of a company. Yeah, I I'm pretty stickler in this one, Nolan. I have a zero tolerance for yeah. right the th those types of comments starkly against other people. I mean, again, we talked about it a little bit with um a couple segments ago, right? Is is the the bottom line is the inclusivity and the respect and the company values that you sign up when you go into that company. Right, with other people in that company. So I, I think it's actually one of the easiest lines to draw. Fully agree with terminating, fully agree with like targeted towards someone else that's on your team and wearing the same jersey and company that you're wearing is a no-no. That's really interesting. I, I fully agree with you. 
I don't know if the line is black and white. I I think it is from where I sit, but I I could see another person's perspective on it. And I think specifically in this case, I think in both of these cases, it has been folks internally coming out in support of Palestine. And I think their their perspective, I am not defending it, to be clear. And in fact, like I live on the other side of this debate, but I, I'm yeah. trying to be intellectually honest. Sure. To put myself in their shoes. They're saying, well, we're having this discussion now internally. I'd like to submit my perspective. And it, I like, how do you think about that? Look, we started this by saying hate speech. Yeah. That is very different than I support Israel or I support Palestine or I support blank in the right forums with the boundaries set within that company. Those two things are very different. What I'm talking about is literally targeted hate speech against someone else. That is different than I'm going to speak in the forums that the company agrees to and I adhere to about what I support or I don't support. Yep. I'll just, I'll bring up what I brought up in our last conversation around politics at work. I think this is furthering the point of politics at work is a very complicated and slippery slope. And my take continues to be, which I think we're starting to see right now publicly, it's so hard to draw lines and then have those lines move with current events that it, it just feels like it's so much easier to just to not have those discussions especially on Slack where people are trying to get shit done. And work is thought of as, as a reprieve for many people from what is actually going on in the world. Yes. And I think that that's okay. And I think more people are starting to come around to like, can I just get my shit done at work and not have to worry about, you know, being at C being at CNN while on Slack. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm personally getting closer to that just because of everything that's going on. I do think the lines are blurring. I just where I where I stand Nolan is to not be sensitive to how those things might be impacting people and maybe that maybe that's hey take time off yeah right maybe it's leadership being more sensitive to when people are being affected by that yeah if those things can't be talked about at work for whatever reason the thing that makes me stressed out and I'm not in the CPO role right now and I really feel for those in that role is the slippery slope of those when those things show up outside of work, right? When there is some, when there is someone very aggressive, hate speech, etc., yeah. in forums that are not within the firewalls of a company, that's where it gets really difficult. Oh, interesting. So you're saying company right. employee posts something like on Twitter, correct, or LinkedIn? Again, what they believe and support is one thing. I'm talking about hate speech when someone is going the 180 of in the opposite direction obviously of company values that they adhere to at work that's when it becomes really hard i totally agree and you know again like i want to be very clear i think what happened is an absolute atrocity but america does stand at least for companies within the united states america does stand for free speech and I think hate speech is the the for sure line and where that line is actually being drawn right now, I think is really tough. That's actually, I think exactly what happened in the Wix case. In the Wix case, it was an employee who, who said something on social media and then was terminated for what they said on social media. 
And Kelly, I would, ter- I would even terminate the person for if I saw it internally of what they posted externally on social media, I would terminate them for that. Yeah. Would you? Yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, tend to be more of a let's, let's get into the context and the information. So I'm not going to sit it's up here. And I'm going to, sure. uh, like, I always, always look at every detail, every side. But for me, you always know I love to go to the bottom line. It's, it's, do I feel safe? And do I feel like I belong? I think that that's those a really two things good matter. You can apply it to anything. I think it's a really good framework. And I think it's a really good framework for chief people officers and CEOs as they are navigating this. I, I just want to continue to reiterate that I don't think the world is getting less complex. In fact, I think it's getting more complex. And the more complex it gets, the more complex it gets internally to your company for how you navigate these things. And so I would just, I would encourage CEOs to think about this now, especially going into the new year. And um, I will tell you, it is a breath of fresh air for me to turn off Twitter, to turn off the news, to come to work uh, and to get shit done with my homies. That's really fun. And I don't have to worry about politics here. And I, I think a lot of more, a lot more people are coming around to that idea. I agree that the world is becoming more complex versus less. And I just wish, you know, we, we would say that more, right? Everyone has to have an answer or what's your view? What are we going to do? And sometimes it's like, oh, I don't know. I'm really stressed out. I'm in over my head. I'm personally overwhelmed. This sucks overall. And I don't, I don't know. Someone asked me, you know, what, what is the role of a chief people officer recently? And I said, the role, our role is to help leaders live in the goddamn gray. Like our role is to help folks walk in everyone's shoes and, and actually see the gray versus force sometimes a black or white line. It's not that I don't have a point of view or no backbone, but it is important. I'm with you. I think that's a great frame of people have to live in the gray and a chief people officer needs to help them do that. I think the chief people officer can also reduce the gray. Nothing is black and white, especially when you're dealing with humans, but otherwise you just spend so much time going through these cycles and then you're not building the business. Like a no, lot you're of right. this, you're right. a lot of this stuff is just not building. It's not business building. Yeah. It's distractions. No, you're and, right. I mean, we got to eliminate we, those. Yeah, we could spend all day, duh, but th- that's what I mean. What yeah. is the simple way to cut through inclusivity and belonging? One example. Yeah. And when is when is it a time not to cut through and actually stop and yeah. be thoughtful? So, audience, we would love to hear from you all. Uh, ping me and Kelly directly. By the way, many of you have over the last couple of weeks. We thoroughly enjoy it. We're trying to bring those topics into the show. And so keep pinging us because we know how hard it is in the seat. And oftentimes you can't say things publicly and we want to be that voice for you. We want to talk about the really hairy topics. So ping us, let us know what else you guys want to hear. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.